on the job with Francis Leach and Sally Rugg. It's On The Job, the podcast all about making your working life better. Francis Leach with you here today. Sally will be back with us next week for our final edition of the podcast. But this year, we've got a very special summer series coming up for you, though. A really good deep dive into the history of unionism and activism with our very own historical oracle, Dr. Liam Byrne. And on that sort of tip today... We're going to be doing something similar. A couple of weeks ago, I came across a really great yarn on insidestory.org.au and I sort of stopped and had a look at a bit of writing from economist and historian Brett Evans. Now, Brett has written this extraordinary historical piece about American unionism and the story of the Ludlow Massacre. Now, in the early part of the 20th century, in the late 19th century in the United States, there were really large workers' movements trying to improve the appalling conditions that workers and immigrants from all around the world who had arrived in the United States had been suffering in as the country uh, industrialised and grew to become the enormous economic powerhouse that it is today. And in this particular incident, it was one of the bloodiest moments in American labour history. But it also, out of the, the mess and the horror of it all, created something special that 100 years on has delivered a different approach to the way that uh, Americans, or at least some of them, think about labour rights, about the way pay and, and entitlement should work. It's a fascinating story, so let's catch up with him. This is Brett Evans on the Ludlow Massacre. Brett, welcome to On The Job. Thank you very much for having me. Tell me about David Card. You've written about this economist who's won the Nobel Prize for Inside Story. Who is he and what has he been talking about? Well, David Card is an expert on the minimum wage and he recently won the Nobel Prize. And I was asked to write a story about the minimum wage and David Card by Inside Story. And when I got into his life, I discovered a whole other story which is related to his life. And to tell you that story, we've got to go right back to sort of World War I, 1914 in America. Well, we love a bit, of, we love called- a bit of history on, on, the, on the job, so you take us right back there. <laughs> All right, well, let's go, let's go way back. Let's go way back to that time. It's um, Colorado. It's before the First World War. It's the coal mining industry in that part of the world. And bear with me because this does relate to David Card and his Nobel Prize. We'll get there eventually. The coal fields at that time in Colorado were like a little piece of feudal England dropped into the Midwest. If you were a coal miner, you were like a subcontractor. You didn't work for wages. You worked for how much coal you dug up. And you lived in a company town, which was guarded by company guards. People weren't allowed in or out of the company town without their permission. And it was like you were a vassal, like a serf. And there are all sorts of laws to protect the workers, but the local Colorado state government didn't enforce them. So they kind of had these absolute power over these people who were out there digging coal. You got paid by the tonners, I think I mentioned. They would rig the scales so they wouldn't have to pay you as much. When you did work to uh, make the mines safe, you weren't paid. It was a terrible, terrible situation. But they got unionised. Secretly, the Mine Workers Union established itself. And there was a big strike in 1914 um, in the Colorado coal fields. And as soon as they're on strike, they have to leave the company town and the union supplies them with tents. And they set up at a place called Ludlow, which was just a train depot. 
And they're there trying to stop the scab workers coming in and they're trying to fight for their rights to be paid better and better conditions. And there's about 1,200 miners and their families and their kids living in this tent city called White City. And underneath the tents, they dug um, sort of trenches and holes and things where they could hunker down if things got bad. And on April the 20th, 1914, they got very bad. The mine owners had in their pocket the local National Guard, which is like the militia run by the state government. They had thugs they'd imported. They had people from a detective agency. And these guys had surrounded the the White City. And they actually had a machine gun. (laughs) It's kind of extraordinary. So at some point in the course of this day, fighting breaks out. The company thugs are strafing the tent city with a machine gun. Women and children are hunkering down in their trenches underneath their tents. Their men who are armed are fighting back. There's a gunfight going on. This goes on for all day. At one point, a train comes into the siding, which means that the two sides are separated and a lot of people use that to escape. And sort of cut a long story short, three mine leaders are sort of grabbed and killed, shot in the back. And then the the company men go into the the tent city and they set fire to it. Lots of people escape, but unfortunately, in some cases, there were women and children hiding under the tents in these trenches that I talked about, and they were killed by the fires. So 17 people died, including children and babies. And it became, as you might have expected, a huge event in American history. And then the fighting went on for another two weeks, where the unionists and the company militia fought each other and dozens more people died. And it didn't finish until Woodrow Wilson sent in the US Army to calm things down. It's just an amazing story. And look, I I thought I knew a bit about US labor relations, but I didn't know about the Ludlow Massacre. Extraordinary story and a really important one because it's a, a landmark story and just how brutal and how ruthless the suppression of labour rights, particularly in the United States. Here in Australia as well, we had violent uh, situations like this too, and in the UK and elsewhere around around the world. But the American experience in particular was particularly violent and ruthless in the way that uh, the capital suppressed labour and, and did its best to, to crush uh, worker movements. And at the heart of this was John Rockefeller, who is a famous name. I mean, even, even if you're not an American, you kind of know the Rockefeller name as one of the, the titans of American industry, one of the, you know, they're considered one the pioneers of capitalism in America, he's tied up in this, and and that's how we get to card eventually. Tell us what that's That's about. Well, there's two John Rockefellers. There's John Rockefeller who set up um, Standard Oil, and then there's his son, John Rockefeller Jr. And it's John Rockefeller Jr. who owns the mine that we've been talking about. And it's a disaster on a PR scale, and it's also the introduction of modern public relations. So he hires people to go in and try and smooth over the issues that have been created by this terrible act of violence. And he had also, by that stage, become a philanthropist. And he also, at this time, started putting more money into different things. And one of the things he put money into was the study of industrial relations at Princeton University. So in 1922, he funds the thing, a thing called the industrial relations section in Princeton University. And many, many years later, in the 1980s, that's where David Card, the bloke we're talking about, meets his key collaborator, a guy called Alan Kruger, and they begin work working together. So the Ludlow massacre leads Carnegie to maybe he feels bad, maybe it's just pure PR. He drops it, lots of money into something like Princeton University, and then many decades later, 
these two guys do some research, which is very important for the struggle for better wages in America. And in 1994, they publish a paper that examines the economic orthodoxy that the minimum wage uh, needs to be suppressed because if you raise wages, the uh, other side of the scale is inevitably it increases unemployment. And that's off the back of an era of Reaganomics and Thatcherite ideology that we need a cheap workforce in order for people to make as much money possible so that the rich can reinvest and it'll trickle back down and eventually working people will get their just desserts, which we know uh, now is a load of BS, but back then that was, the, and it's sort of the prevailing orthodoxy for many conservative economic thinkers today. What were these guys doing? Well, as you point out, I mean, that was the orthodoxy. Um, you know, supply and demand. If you increase the price of something, the demand for it will go down. So they used to tell people on the minimum wage or poor people, working people, I'm very sorry, but if we increase your wages, you'll become unemployed. So it's for your own good that you don't get paid any extra. So that was always the conventional wisdom. It's the conventional wisdom that John D. Rockefeller himself, I'm sure, would have thought of as just common sense. But these guys, Card and Kruger, they had an opportunity to study this in real time almost. In New Jersey, they'd raised the minimum wage. And in Pennsylvania, the state next door, they didn't raise the minimum wage. So they thought, great, we can do a, an experiment. So they sent out surveys to fast food companies in those two states and, and asked them what had happened after New Jersey raised the wage and Pennsylvania kept it the same, sorry. And lo and behold, <laughs> it didn't have an impact on unemployment. In fact, New Jersey, there was a, a small uptick in employment for those workers, even though they were being paid a higher minimum wage. And you actually had Princeton economists, quite a conservative institution, sort of giving the intellectual heft to the argument that unionists would have believed for a long time, but from an economic perspective. So it's much harder to argue against the idea of increasing the minimum wage. And the trick sort of is that if you increase the minimum wage, businesses um, have less turnover, they spend less money on training, their training is more effective, their productivity goes up. All of those things means that the business itself actually possibly benefits from having uh, paying people a little bit better. And then in the broader community, you've got a lot of working poor people with more money in their pockets. And the thing we know economists will tell you about poor working people is that they spend all their money. So they've got more money in their pockets, they're spending more, and the local economy is actually doing a bit better. So it turned over this economic theory shibboleth by these really highly respected economists. And they went on to write a book, and it became the intellectual argument behind the push for a higher minimum wage in the United States. Which is still, you know, being fought for and it had, there have been some games in some states and it's still nowhere near enough. And we now live in a world of zero-hour contracts and, and the gig economy where employees are no longer employees but they're sole contractors. So capital has realigned itself to try to shake itself away from any responsibility for its workers. So that's another battle. But have there been yeah. other examples of where the work that Card and Kruger did uh, has actually changed the minimum wage? I think you mentioned in your article that Germany was one of those places. Yeah, that's right. So... Card and Kruger do this economic work in the 90s, and in the 2000s particularly, um, you've got this movement. It's called Fight for 15 in, in America. It's like 15 bucks an hour. That's what they want. And many states and some of the big cities start to adopt this idea as a policy. And the work of Card and Kruger, like I said, give the intellectual support to it. And it has actually occurred in, I don't know, some dozen states in the, in the United States and in several big cities. Similarly, in Germany, they brought in a uh, minimum national wage several years ago, 
And the same argument was had, you know, this will cause unemployment. The media would say that this is a policy mistake. Recent research shown that Kardon-Kruger, the effect was similar, that um, it didn't actually have much of an impact on employment. So people were paid better, but they weren't losing their jobs. So, you know, it's a useful thing when you've got respected economists turning over this idea and then conventional wisdom starts to be chipped away at and then people making the arguments in the field, labour activists and unions, can point to that sort of research and say, no, look, it hasn't caused what you said it's caused. It's actually been beneficial. And that's an ongoing sort of thing all around the world. And then just a few weeks ago, David Card won the Nobel Prize for Economics for that work. So from Ludlow to Rockefeller to David Card to the Nobel Prize, there's this um, line of connection. And the sad part was that Kruger, who he'd done the original work with, had died a few years ago. He um, committed suicide, very sadly. He was only 58. And they don't give out the Nobel Prizes posthumously. So he wasn't on it. And Card said some very nice things about his colleague who he'd worked with to establish these, um, these new ideas in economics. So that's kind of the story. And the key thing for me is that it shows you that change can occur. Like, from Ludlow to fast food workers getting 15 bucks an hour in some places in America now, there's a chain of connection and it just shows you that things can change. Yeah, it's really important also. It does provide an intellectual underpinning to the pushback against the the acceptance for a long time that uh, that capitalism, unfettered capitalism was actually a force of nature, like the sun rising in the morning or the wind blowing. It just was the way the world was, not a construct of human behaviour and activity designed to, to actually uh, suit and uh, enrich a few at the expense of many. That is actually a choice. It's not just the way yeah. the world is. That's yeah. really important because for so long, particularly in the post-Cold World War, when there wasn't that sort of ideological, the two ideological tenets, a varying hues of extremity between capital and, and I guess, a socialist idea of the way this state should work, that we just had the end of history. We had capitalism and we had, yeah. that's all we're going to get. Yeah, that's right. And part of the research I did for the story, which I couldn't include, and this is an interesting sort of thing because you're moving from one millionaire in the 20th century to a millionaire of the 21st century. There's a guy called Nick Hanauer who's a millionaire, and he wrote a, an article some years ago called They're Coming For Us With Pitchforks, and he's a multimillionaire, and he said, we can't keep creating inequality in the United States. The whole system will start to fall apart. And um, he's been funding or he helped fund um, uh, the Fight for 15 in um, Seattle where he, um, he lives. Um, so you can see that there's more at stake than just the working conditions of individual people. It's also about how society works and can work better and more successfully, more fairly over time as well. And even millionaires can see it. They can say, me making more money is not to the benefit of my society. Let's spread it around a little bit. Hanauer is one, I guess, and a key one. Warren Buffett, the uh, the very, very uber-rich uh, investor talks about how he pays less tax than, than his employees and how obscene that is. And you've got the likes of even uh, here in Australia, the owner of Paddy Pallon at the moment, who's been very successful selling camping gear for many, many years, talking about that just the other day on the ABC, about how yeah. uh, tax arrangements for him are much more accommodating for a very rich man like him than it is for some of his casual employees and how that leads to a wrench in the social fabric. Because if people 
can no longer believe or no longer believe that the system is there for them to support and nurture them as well as the rich, then they're going to be dealt out of the game. And, and that's where we get the cynicism, the anger, and and I guess people taking extreme measures to, to get what they feel is their fair share. Yeah. I mean, it gets back to that initial point, which is that if you see the world in a certain way, it will be that way. But if you can break out and see it in a new way, and whether you're a you know, flipping burgers into McDonald's or you're a millionaire like Hanau or others, you can see that that's unfair. The system that creates the disparities in wealth is unfair and ultimately not to the benefit of society as a whole. If you're an act, a labor activist in America or even Australia, I mean, it would be good to know that, that you can find allies who have money who believe roughly the same sorts of things as you. Yeah, just anyway, re- reading- Maybe that's the story of my article. Yeah. <laughs> reading a yeah. line from Hanau's, uh, that famous article that Hanau wrote, and as I have a message from my fellow filthy rich, for all of us who live in our gated bubble worlds, wake up people, it won't last. So are we still down that path? It feels like we're still down that path. I mean, when we've been going through the pandemic and we've had people losing their jobs, businesses closing, uh, people suffering immensely at the same time, we're seeing two billionaires uh, building spaceships and flying off into space in the ultimate indulgence of wealth. I mean, the the, the compass, the, the the contrast and comparison is is extremely jarring, and it's just it's almost begging for a revolution. These guys have got no <laughs> sense of what the rest of the world is suffering through. Well, one of the things Hanauer also said, which I thought was interesting, he said, "I had a lot of advantages. I came from a middle class family. I got a good education." I made some good business deals and I was lucky. He doesn't think he's a morally better person than the other people in the society just because he's rich, which I think is possibly what people like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos might think. He thinks, I was lucky. I'm not a genius. It's not all down to me, you know. And that shift in the way of thinking, I think, is an important way of reassessing how society should work. It's also an encouragement to people who are working at the moment and maybe haven't been in a union before or because of the nature of their work, the incredibly casualised nature of work these days, insecure work, it's hard to make those connections, that it's worth seeking it out because it's through that collective action that we can actually uh, you know, build on the work of Carden Kruger and the sacrifices of the people of Ludlow and, and all of those things that have gone before us to make sure that those conditions and those terms on which we we work are actually improved. Absolutely. It's called the fight for 15 in America. It's because people come together and fight. Millionaires like Hanauer and ordinary people trying to push the system to be a bit fairer. Um, And you'll only really get that through organisations like unions and other things like that, that you'll get the political heft to actually, you know, make a difference and and get, get yourself something. That's right. Good to talk to you, Brett. Great article. We'll share the uh, link to it in the show notes below and we'll also share the link to the the famous Nick Hanauer Belling the Cat article that he wrote for Politico magazine back in 2014, which is as relevant today as it was when it was written in so people can have a a deeper dive into what he had to say as well. Mate, thanks for being on the job. No, thank you very much. This is On The Job with Francis Leach and Sally Rudd. Writer, journalist, economist Brett Evans there on the Ludlow Massacre. I'll put the link to the story in the show notes for you, but if you want to check out the uh, the website itself, I've got plenty of fascinating stuff beyond just that story. It's called insidestory.org.au, insidestory.org.au. That's it for this week's edition of On The Job. Don't forget, we really appreciate any rating you can give us on your podcast app. Helps other people find the information and the inspiration. Uh, write us a review, give us your stars, let us know what you think of the pod. You can email us, otjpodcast at at protonmail.com 
otjpodcast at protonmail.com. And we'll catch you next week for our final edition for 2021 of On The Job. Bye for now.